You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. So let me just start off with just a, I'm the least qualified person to moderate this discussion. I'm not a copyright expert. I'm not an internet music expert. Um, but I am a person that just is always shocked at how, what the congressional role and government role is in the music that we listen to. It's really interesting and it's not really well known. So me being a total neophyte and not a copyright expert, um, I might be actually in a good good place to kind of keep this at a high level and if we come out of this today was just kind of explaining and having you better understand um, the role that Congress plays um, how it affects the music you listen to um, over your favorite services and how artists get compensated and are able to negotiate their their compensation uh, that'd be great and that's really what we're trying to do here we're not we're not trying to get into any discussions about legislation that's on the table. Uh, my understanding is that the House Judiciary Committee and the House of Representatives is, is reviewing copyright in this area. Um, they probably will introduce a bill at some, po some point uh, later on. Uh, other agencies are also looking at this issue. Um, but in the meantime, we thought we'd just lay down a good, just basic understanding of how this works at a very general level. It's entirely possible you could take a four-credit course um, at Georgetown or at GW, um, and the entire you know, semester, maybe not really, really understand this entire marketplace. Um, you could, if you're an economics major, you might want to do your PhD thesis on the rate setting aspect of it alone, and you probably still wouldn't even understand uh, fully this entire complex uh, space. Uh, Mike Godwin from the R Street Institute uh, wrote a piece in trying to break down the music rates, and he said that it's practically complex, and I think that's a really good <laughs> description. We are not going to get anywhere near any of that complexity. We're going to try to keep it high level and, and you know, keep it at that. So that, that's our goal. And then maybe at the end we'll just ask um, if people have a, an opinion about whether Congress or Taylor Swift is more powerful in this particular Internet streaming marketplace. But um, let's start with you know, Taylor Swift. I mean, I, you might have read that she had a disagreement, a polite disagreement with um, the most valuable uh, company on the planet um, a couple weeks back and, and wrote a polite letter. Um, and within 24 hours, that most valuable company on the planet, uh, changed its mind. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was a breathtaking display of power. And I think people were like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, her Twitter followers, uh, just gobsmacked by how powerful she was, you know, thought she could do other things like, you know, sail, you know, they pleaded to her to save the whales and to, um, you know, create sensible gun control and maybe affect cli better climate change policy. So, um, you know, it's really kind of that display of power that's really interesting and kind of at the core of maybe how this entire ecosystem works. Um, and it also affects you. I mean, everybody, everybody's listening to music on their favorite apps or their favorite streaming services and, and, and accessing it in different ways. And, and, and it really is, is really kind of immediate to all of you and to the American people. And th that wasn't the case, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. So it's really interesting um, that today we have this really, um, everybody's an, invested in this. So um, we wanted to frame this as a discussion, not to create a pick a fight, uh, as I said, but really just to show the kind of role that Congress plays in this. So um, uh, a bit of a bit of mangled um, legislative history. You could go back to the original Copyright Act. You could go back to the Constitution. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go back only as far as 1995. And in 1995, uh, Congress passed the Digital Performance Right and Sound Recordings Act. Um, it's limited only to digital transmissions. 
Um, so basically, for lack of a better, internet transmissions, and that's really kind of the scope of what we're talking about today, just internet transmissions. Um, so we created that right in 1995, it was a performance right. Now, there hadn't been a performance right, copyright, um, before, and, and every, anybody here will cr correct me because I'm not an expert on this, but performance, performance rights are based, performance, performance is the, the, the sound recording um, on your, your, your tape or on your digital file, whether it be an MP3 in your hard drive or stream to you from a, a streaming service on their hard drive, that's the sound recording, the performance. Um, and that's what it created a right in. And it created two rights, which we can get into detail a little bit about, but there were two. One was for non-interactive transmissions. Non-interactive is like you can't kind of control what specific song you listen to. It basically streams to you. You can like fast forward one or, or thumbs down one or whatever, but that's basically like a, there, there's a lot of companies that do this, but Spotify is probably the best, best known. Um, so they have, the, the act requires them those services to pay, to pay a statutory license established by a copyright board. So that's one thing. So they control that it control that space, and then also interactive uh, internet transmissions, and that's where you can kind of select the music you want, um, you know, pick what types of songs you want um, that are streamed to you. You don't actually own them, but they're streamed to you, and that's that's kind of like the I guess the Spotify model. There's a few few of them that that's the best. Well, I think the best well known. Um, and, and and for that, um, Congress said you kind of have to negotiate a license agreement with the copyright holder. So those services have to negotiate a license. Um, and, but in 1995, when they passed this act, I mean, we can talk about Spotify, we can talk about Pandora, but what were you doing musically in 1995? Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the interns up on the Hill were really busy, be, busy being born. Um, I don't know what they were listening to, maybe Baby Einstein, you know, those things that were most, supposed to make your kids smarter. Um, but generally, it was a long time ago. 1995, there was no internet streaming. If I were to say, like, you know, who in 1995 was streaming music, no one raised their hand. And even if they were streaming music, it would probably be pirated material, and you wouldn't want to raise your hand anyway. Um, there, and those were FTPs from, like, a college, you know, college server tucked away somewhere. There was no music streaming in 1995. You know, of course, towards the latter part of that, the latter part of that decade, um, you know, you had you, you started to see like more, more and more sophisticated piracy. Um, you also had the introduction of um, MP3 players. Um, I had a Nomad, uh, a Nomad by Creative. Other people had Rios. And what you would do is you'd take your entire CD library that you'd collected all your entire life and you'd rip it onto your um, uh, MP3 player that would only hold like 12 songs or something at a really low bit rate. And that was basically the life in the late 90s. Um, in 2001, um, Apple introduced a massive iPod um, music player. Uh, the first iPod was a 2001, and you could cram a bunch of your entire CD catalog into the iPod, which is pretty cool. And then in 2003, iTunes Store came out, and you could download songs one song at a time, like 99 cents basically. Later it goes then up to 129, but that was pretty cool. But you kind of own that song, right? Um, and that was the, kind of the streaming situation or the internet distribution system of the day. Um, and of course, through this entire time, piracy just kept going. You know, I'm not saying that that, that was running in parallel, of course. Um, and then um, later, um, it wasn't until later that Pandora and other types of streaming services started coming into the fold. Um, and that, again, those are the uh, non-interactive services where they just kind of stream. You can maybe fast forward one, but you get what you get. 
um, in a certain genre, and 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 that and that is that grow that has grown tremendously over the past several years. Um, and and then while all this while this was going in Europe, um, there was a company called Spotify, and uh, you know what we would call not. Um, uh, interactive services where you could select what songs you want to listen to. Spotify was growing in Europe and, and, and kind of like finally washed on U.S. shores, um, in 2011. So, so now we have this really amazing marketplace. Um, it gets more and more interesting. And now what we're going to do is try to explain how Congress has a role in all of this. Um, so I think to start us off, I'm going to go through, uh, introduce our, our, our speakers and then maybe ask folks to layer on very very simply kind of like the, the different types of roles that people uh, government has and how it all works out. And then we'll go, th we'll go back and do it again. Then we'll go to audience questions and answers. And then we'll finally ask the question of who has more power. So um, going, from, going from to my right, um, we have Alec French, who's the founder and principal of Thorson French Advocacy. Um, uh, Alec used to work on the, the subcommittee and the Judiciary Committee on IP issues. Um, uh, he also represents um, ASCAP, which is an important player in this space. Um, we also have uh, Julia Massimino, who's the vice president of, of global public policy for Sound Exchange, which is a company that literally kind of was born out of that 1995 act, and she can explain how that happened. Um, and then uh, to her right, we have Karen Erickson, who's with um, uh, the Future Music Coalition, which is an interesting kind of advocacy group, but also does a lot of education and, and things like that. And then Jonathan Potter, who is with the App Developers Alliance, and we wanted to have Jonathan Potter here uh, to kind of explain it from like the apps that are on your phone and, and how you kind of access these internet music services um, and kind of explain this in a little more detail. Um, my understanding uh, is that uh, Taylor Swift was not available for this panel, um, it, which also says there's th these are th four really great speakers. We would have to have a panel of like a hundred people to represent every piece part of this particular ecosystem, and that's obviously not possible. So we're going to do our best um, to lay this all down. And and if I could just start off with Jonathan, because Jonathan represents um, app developers, um, a variety of different companies that I mentioned, maybe. And uh, Jonathan, maybe can explain kind of like the 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 music services that you have in your pocket. Um, you know, how, how does this all work? And and just a really quick overview of that, Jonathan. Thank you, Tim, um, and thanks to the Internet Caucus for inviting me. Um, in 1995, I was not listening to Baby Einstein. Um, I was actually representing the original streaming music company, which is um, historically known as Muzak. Um, and Wikipedia just told me that that was the first streaming music company. So the first band to stream was in 1993 at Xerox Park. When they were testing the technology, they brought a band in and streamed it all the way to Australia. Um, when, for, so, so when I think about internet music, and we're obviously not just talking about streaming, which is considered straight performance, um, which is radio, if you will. Um, you think about the variety of services that are online today that have come and gone over the years. I group them into four basic business um, activities, and then there's some twists and turns on each one. And um, Tim has. Um, asked me to basically talk about some of the business and then some of the other folks are going to talk more about the rights and royalties and then we'll circle around. So to lay out your four basic business models, um, one of them is really just internet radio. Take your radio station, put it on the internet, listen to music that other people are programming. Right? At the purest sense of internet plus radio, think about your local radio station, right? KISS FM or WJFK or whatever it is, and they're just, they're just happen to be streaming. Um, that was the original that was Mark Cuban's second company. 
the one that now made him the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Um, and he did very well. He sold that to Yahoo for $6 billion. Um, Yahoo didn't do so well with that one. Um, so that's Internet radio. But then it goes all the way forward to what about people that are only streaming on the Internet, that are only playing music on the Internet. And that's your Pandora model. Um, we can talk about all, you know, what it means to be interactive versus non-interactive, things like that. But at the basic level, think about it as pre-programmed or consumer-influenced, right? You can't choose which song you hear, but you can affect it. Um, that's basic Internet radio. Pandora is probably the best model of that now. Um, On-demand radio, think about a jukebox and put that on the Internet. You can spe specify which song you want to hear. You can specify to shuffle on the internet radio stream, right? So you go to um, Spotify, you want to hear a mix of songs that you like um, and you know, but you also say mix it up a little bit. Some of that is on demand, some of it is maybe prepackaged, but you can also just take it from your collection. So think about an on-demand jukebox or some mix of that, um, and that's your, your on-demand radio. Your next traditional model that has essentially morphed to the internet and morphed to, to apps and digital is buying music, right? Some of you were old enough to remember when there were record stores. You know, Tower, Sam Goody? No, okay. Um, they also used to sell other things, paraphernalia that your parents didn't want you to have, um, at least in my town. Um, so think about just purchased music, 99 cent download, $1.29 downloads, $8.99 an album, $13.99 an album. So that's at the far end of the spectrum. Um, and once you own that music, today, you can generally port it to whatever device you want. It comes in primarily MP3 formats, although if you're Neil Young, you're pushing your new Ponos player. Uh, I, the branding is interesting, um, but it gets you. He wants to do higher bitrate streams, higher quality streams, and in fact, he's now pulled his music down from all the services that young people listen to, so he's clearly defined his audience as my parents. Um, and I'm a Neil Young fan. I love Neil Young. But he put his music out on 8-tracks, right? So what's the big deal about a lower bitrate stream? Um, the, more, the most interesting business model for apps and digital music is conditional downloads or, or subscription services that let you do a whole variety of things, right? So you're paying $10 a month, $8 a month, $13 a month to Spotify, the new Apple Music, um, the old Beats. I'm trying to remember um, other services. Um, Rhapsody, right, audio, what's that? Title, right, right. Another one where the star thinks it's going to make the difference. Um, those are services that let you do almost everything, right? You can stream prepackaged stations. You can stream music that you've already purchased. You can download conditionally, right? Think about it, temporary downloads. As long as you pay your $9.99 a month, you can still listen to that music, and you can port it to your device and take it with you wherever you want. You can um, probably even now port it to your hard drive in your car. Um, cars have hard drives. Um, so those different business models are all out there. They are Some of them are free. Some of them are advertising supported. Some of them are freemium models, right? Taste it for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and then they try to upsell you to a subscription price. And some of them are subscriptions, and they all mix and match in between. So Pandora, for free, is advertising supported. Pandora, as a subscription, is ad-free. But they're both internet radio. And they're both non-interactive internet radio, which means they fall under the statutory license that some other folks will talk about. Um, 
that's really, you know, some, some subscriptions offer family plans, right? And I will tell you, um, true story. Ted Cohen will tell you this story. He was at a record company. They were licensing an early internet music company. And the business development person came in and said, we want to license this service so that two people can listen to the music at the same time. And the record industry exec said, we can't do that. We have to charge them double. And the business development person came back and said, you know what? I think we can let them let two people listen at once because if not, one person will listen and the other person will steal it. So let's give them a break. And now you have the Apple family plan and other businesses are doing family plans. And of course, just like at a, at, on your cable subscription, you can watch on four TVs at once. Um, the, the record industry over the last 20 years has recognized that, you know, we want to make this attractive. And the record industry has come a, a long way and there's a licensed, all these services are legal. They're all licensed. None of them have anything to do with piracy. And you could argue that they all substitute for piracy, which is um, a great thing. And they put billions of dollars every year into artists and songwriters and labels and publishers' pockets um, and substitute for the fact that Tower Records doesn't exist anymore. So thank you. That, that was great. Thanks, John. And um, I had mentioned, uh, in, in, and John had referenced it as well, is that the 1995 Act creating the digital performance right in sound recordings was for sound recordings. Again, the, what you catch on tape, what you store in MP3, the, the sound recording of it. Um, there's other rights, though, that are what makes this more complicated. We're going to layer that on now. So um, Alec is probably in the best, um, best position to kind of talk about, from his perspective, um, those other types of rights and how they kind of influence the, the conversations that you hear uh, in the news and on TV and, and in, in the industry. So, Alec, if you can explain that next layer of complexity. Sure. And also want to thank Tim and the Internet Caucus for having me here. Uh, Going to start with a little prop, uh, see if this sounds any good. Everyone's heard that song, I assume. Um, does anyone know who the band is? Throw out a name. Megan Trainer. Does anyone know who wrote that song? Um, so this this is the this is the core issue. Actually, actually, there are two copyrights in every piece of music that you hear. Um, there's a copyright in the sound recording that Megan Trainer made, the fact that she that's her voice and the musical instrumentation, everything you hear, there's a copyright in that sound recording. But there's also a copyright in what's called the musical composition. Someone sat down, I'll tell you who, and actually wrote the lyrics to that song and wrote the musical notes that would be played by the different instruments. So you have a music composition and a sound recording in every song you hear. Actually, for that song, um, uh, Megan Trainer was one of the writers. Another guy named Kevin Kadish, who's an ASCAP member, is, is the co-writer. So you have some guy you've never heard of who is the writer of the piece of music that then was recorded. Uh, Kevin Kadish, you probably wouldn't want to go see him in concert because you don't know him. Uh, you probably are not going to buy T-shirts with his face on it because you don't know him. He's a writer. That's his job. That's what he does. And it's a completely different copyright and a completely different business than the sound recording business. I'm going to talk about the songwriter because that's uh, who I represent through ASCAP and, and Julia is going to handle the sound recording side. Um, so you have these two uh, copyrights. Now, when you have a copyright, um, the copyright gives you the exclusive right, meaning you're the person who has the right to do certain things. Uh, for music, the ones that are important are you have the exclusive right to reproduce, to make copies of your copyrighted work. 
you have the exclusive right to publicly perform your musical composition, and third right is to distribute it. There are two other rights don't really implicate music, so we won't talk about them. Um, well, to get to kind of the core of what this panel's about is you as a songwriter who have these exclusive rights, you don't actually have the right to go out and exercise those rights in the free market in most cases. In most cases, your ability to license those rights to others who want to have them is regulated in one way or another. Um, and just kind of give you a quick overview of what that is. Um, when someone wants to publicly perform your music as a songwriter, and, and this is, uh, you know, this is a right, Tim talked about the 1995 Act, that actually only applies to sound recording. Uh, songwriters have had a right in, to perform their works since the first Copyright Act was created in 1789. Um, when you want to publicly perform a songwriter's work, whether it's on a radio station, so a radio station wants to do it, a bar, a restaurant, a concert venue, Pandora, Spotify, uh, cable television, broadcast television, when any of those services want to perform music, they've got to get the rights from the songwriter. Well, imagine how complicated it would be if a radio station had to go out and find and then negotiate with the songwriters of all the music that you hear on a radio station. Well, Pop 40, maybe it's only 40 songs, but Pandora, it's millions, millions of songwriters. That just isn't an efficient, you couldn't have that kind of negotiation with all the songwriters that are out there. So what's because names of people you don't even, you've never heard of, like your example. What was Megan Trainor's songwriter? Kevin Kadish. I've, yeah. I've already forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have this market problem from, from a licensee side, from folks who want to publicly perform music, they wouldn't be able to find all the songwriters and actually have a negotiation with all of them over the rights. Um, from the songwriter side, if you're Kevin Kadish and you're writing all about that bass and other stuff, do you want to drive around the country and uh, knock on the door of every bar and restaurant and concert venue and sit down with Pandora and try to cut a deal with them? That's, that's crazy. That's just you're going to be spending all your time on the business side and none of your time on the creative side. So how the market has kind of fixed this, and this uh, has been going on since 1914, is what sprung up what are called PROs, Performance Rights Organizations. ASCAP is the oldest of them. It started in 1914 been around over 100 years. Um, ASCAP has 500 plus, about 550,000 songwriters that have chosen to be members of ASCAP uh, and have given ASCAP the right to license public performances. So ASCAP now has 550,000 members, song, songwriter members, a repertory of over 9 million songs, and ASCAP goes out and licenses all the entities that want to publicly perform that music and then takes in royalties from all the entities. We have seven, over 700,000 licensees across America. Takes in those royalties, tries to figure out whose music was played, how much, and then distributes that money to the songwriters. Um, so that's that business model that's come around since 1914 is kind of an efficient way to make sure licensees and songwriters can meet and license the music, but in 1941, uh, the Justice Department decided that the two big licensors right then, there's a competitor to ASCAP called BMI, about the same size, decided to subject them to an antitrust consent decree because of the market share they had. So since 1941, over almost 75 years, 
um, you've had the government as the backstop here, kind of setting the rules for how songwriters' music is licensed through public performance. Um, and I won't get into too much detail, but that's one way that the government now regulates this marketplace. It says the government is going to control how rates are set and functionally at the end how much is actually paid uh, by licensees to songwriters for a performance of their music. That's the performance side quickly and that's the regulatory regime that, that applies there. Uh, Jonathan mentioned uh, downloads, um, you know, iTunes and, and actually Spotify you may not know also involves copying because to do interactive streaming you have to have a separate copy that you send a, a stream from. Um, that world of how do songwriters license reproductions, copies of their music to folks like Apple or uh, on CDs or elsewhere, people who want to make copies, that is a completely different regulatory regime that Congress has control over because every reproduction is subject to what's called a statutory license. Congress in 1909 actually, going way, way back, actually said uh, if someone wants to make a copy of a musical composition, that, that, that song that a songwriter created, they're going to have a right to do so. They don't have to negotiate with the songwriter in the free market. You don't actually have to go and sit down with them. Congress is going to uh, create, in this case, there's a three-judge panel sitting over in the Library of Congress, actually, of three administrative law judges who determine the rate that a songwriter will be paid each time their music is copied. Um, you know, the rate today is 9.1 cents. In 1909, it was 2 cents, um, so it's gone up a little. Uh, but that's how copies are regulated. Um, then the third and last is there's actually one area of the marketplace where, where songwriters' rights is, is regulated by the free market. Um, every time a, uh, a movie or a television studio takes music and wants to incorporate it into a movie or a, a TV show, they actually have to get the rights from the writer. They're actually making a copy of that musical composition to include, along with the sound recording, in a movie or TV show. Background music, soundtrack, theme song, etc. That negotiation between the producer of the TV and, and, or movie and the songwriter is a free market negotiation. You know, they have to get the rights and they have to, uh, uh, if, if a songwriter doesn't like what they're being offered, uh, Capital City, Safe and Sound, Kia, if they don't like the price that they're being offered, they can say no. Um, excuse me, the songwriter, Capital Cities is the band. Um, so those are the three big baskets and the ways functionally that songwriters' licensing of their rights is regulated. And, and we've only scratched the surface. Does everybody's head hurt already? So uh, Alec just went over the kind of the composer's rights, and we've talked about um, having part of that the system be governed by a DOJ consent decree. Um, another portion of that, the copy portion, being controlled by um, a three-judge panel somewhere, that uh, the Copyright Review Board. Um, and those are for those, those other rights. Um, let's get back a little bit to what Congress did in 1995, which was the, you know, the digital performance right for sound recordings. And that really kind of does a lot to explain the services that you listen to on your phone. And to help us kind of understand that, and over the past 20 years, how that marketplace has grown and what has enabled that to grow, because Alec kind of said that the, his organization, like ASCAP and BMI, have really enabled uh, songwriters to get compensated with, you know, and focus on the creative and not maybe on the business side. Um, the marketplace for the performance rights that Congress made um, in 1995, uh, Julia can explain more about how that has evolved the last 20 years and the role that her company plays in that. Okay. 
Um, it's, it's funny. So I thought I would have to lay a lot of groundwork here, but you guys have laid a lot of the groundwork for me. So Alec talked to you about the two copyrights in every, in every recording that you hear. There's the, the composition, the notes and the lyrics, and the sound recording. And the sound recording is that artist's, that recording artist's interpretation of that composition. Um, and then fixed permanently somehow um, to be a recording. So before 1995 and 1998, before this, the performance right was created in those, in those two laws, there was no performance right for sound recordings under federal law. But suddenly, in 1998, there was, and there was no one to collect the royalties for, the, for that performance right. And so as services developed, um, and as the need to pay royalties um, developed, uh, the industry collectively created an entity to collect those royalties, and that was Sound Exchange. So initially, it was kind of this um, in the corner of an office, uh, a group of people trying to figure out how are we going to do this. As Alec was saying on the composition side, you know, if you have to go to every person who makes a recording and every copyright owner and figure that out, that is very time-consuming and complicated, and we probably wouldn't have many of the services we have today if that um, was the way things had to work. So Sound Exchange was, was born and in 2003 became an independent nonprofit collective um, that represents the entire recording industry. So signed artists, unsigned artists, megastars, local bands, uh, major labels, indie labels, we represent all artists, recording artists, and um, copyright owners, which is normally a record label, but it can often also be the artist who decides to record um, for themselves and owns their own master recordings. So, um, and I should also tell you that our board reflects that we represent the entire industry. Our board is half representatives of record labels, indie labels, major labels, and their trade associations, and half artists and their representatives and their uh, and artist managers and artist unions. Um, and every dollar of royalties that's paid through Sound Exchange is split 50-50 between the copyright owners, usually the, the record label, and the artists, featured artists and non-featured artists. Um, and that is something that is unique, and it is a reason that uh, it, it is um, a reason that artists love Sound Exchange. It is uh, a reason that people often point to Sound Exchange as kind of the bright spot for transparency in the recording industry, um, which is a, a big issue that a lot of people are talking about right now. Um, the other things that we do besides collecting royalties and distributing royalties, we represent everyone at the Copyright Royalty Board, which is the, the entity over at the Library of Congress that Alec mentioned earlier that sets the rates uh, for all of these royalties. And we also advocate on behalf of the industry um, up here and elsewhere to try to protect those rates and to support fair pay for artists and copyright owners. So that's the really easy view of what Sound Exchange does. Um, 
I have a, I have a more complicated view if you want me to get into that. Or, or no, not yet. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, I guess basically what you're saying is that, you know, whether it's Alex's organization or your organization, you know, that the very highest level and the altruistic goal was to make sure that, um, you know, artists, creative people, um, could get compensated quickly. Yeah. Uh, services could get access to the music in the most efficient way possible to get it out to people so they can listen right. to it in a variety of different ways. So, yeah. So let me talk about that for just a second. Um, so the, the kind of the mouthful that I like to say of, of what Sound Exchange does is, we're the nonprofit collective designated by the Copyright Royalty Board to collect and distribute royalties paid for the public performance of sound recordings via non-interactive digital audio transmissions to U.S. listeners pursuant to the statutory licenses that Congress created in, in Section 112 and 114 of the Copyright Act. Most of the first part of that sentence you guys understand because the terms have been defined by everybody else on the panel so far. Um, you understand what public performance is, what a sound recording is, what sort of what non-interactive is. Um, you understand that it's audio, not audiovisual, so it's not YouTube. It's only this part, um, and uh, that it's digital, so it's not terrestrial, which I know we're not going to get into mm. this, but. <laughs> Um, but that's the, the fact that terrestrial radio does not pay artists any royalty and never has is a big inequity in the industry. You mean AM-FM? Yes. So on your old car radio, uh, AM-FM, you're saying that whoever broadcasts that does not pay the artists, but they do. Um, if, they, if, I, if I had a car, new car radio with Wi-Fi yep. and it was streaming Pandora, they do. Yes. Okay. Songwriter gets paid, but the performer does not. That's right. Okay, so this gets a little complicated, but that's it. It does get a little yeah. complicated, but there are 2,500 services. Lest you think this is only about Spotify and Pandora. <laughs> there are 2,500 services that pay royalties through SoundExchange. So it's webcasters like Pandora. It's satellite radio, which right now is just Sirius XM. It's AM, FM broadcasters who decide that they want to simulcast online. Um, and it is um, cable and satellite television systems that have music on them. The stations that are way up at the at the top of the uh, in the big numbers of your cable channels. So, so that's the that's the complicated but, description. But it's it's important, you know, just in terms of the history of it, to understand. In two thousand five, when Sound Exchange made its first distribution of royalties. The total distribution was $20 million, half to copyright owners, half to artists. To, uh, last year, SoundExchange distributed $773 million. So this is where there is exponential growth in the, in the industry, where everywhere else you are hearing that industry revenue as a total is going down. Um, we really are where technology and music meet and where there is growth. Um, and part of the reason for that, and this is, you know, when we get to the question about who's more powerful, Taylor Swift or Congress, Congress created this platform. And this is the platform, you know, Congress created this in 98, and this is the platform on which this whole industry was born. And now it is $773 million last year, but this year it will probably be closer to $900 million for artists and... and so some artists. definitions of power are just money, right? And And... Taylor Swift has a ton of it, um, but Congress just oh, so this is one piece. But yeah. Congress has just you know yielded like 
three quarters of a billion dollars for artists through this system. Right. Okay, so we'll just we'll keep that in mind for the later question. Um, Kevin uh, has been asked to do a bit of cleanup, but one thing we haven't really talked about is where you know Taylor Swift is she uh, is she just the performance? Is she like the Megan Trainer, or is she like the guy whose name I can't remember who wrote the song? Kevin. Kish. Kevin. Yeah. So we haven't even talked about that. So where does her power? Where where does the powers of uh, Taylor Swift come from? But yeah, well, okay, a lot to digest. So everybody understands that there's two kinds of copyright embedded in every piece of Oh, what do you know? So everybody understands there's two kinds of copyright um, embedded in everything that you listen to. So there's the sound recording and there's the composition. The sound recording compensates the performer and the sound recording copyright owner, usually the record label, but sometimes the artists themselves. And the composition, which compensates the songwriter and the publisher. Got that? We also understand that there's different kinds of internet streaming. There's the non-interactive streaming, which, among other things, um, funnels its royalties through sound exchange. And then there's interactive streaming. And interactive streaming is set up different ways. It often um, requires direct negotiation with the owners of the sound recordings, which is, again, usually the record labels. And that was part of the act. The Congress mandated that they have to negotiate. Um, Yes, because they were not covered by the statute. Well, licenses. yeah, it, 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 they have to negoti negotiate those licenses because they're not. Um, there's so a, Congress there is, is a statutory created. So yeah. the absence of a statutory is why they're having to negotiate. Right. Yes. Okay. So and then for unaffiliated artists, people who don't have any record label at all, label at all, if you want to get your music on something like Spotify, you go through an aggregator, an aggregator, which is something like uh, CD Baby or TuneCore or DistroKid. These companies that. Um, can get your music stocked in pretty much any on-demand listening environment. Usually they take some kind of a percentage or a flat fee. Um, got all that? It's a lot to digest. Like, you can start to understand why um, back in 2013, uh, when the head of the Copyright Office, Marie Plante, was giving a speech at uh, Columbia University Law School about the next great copyright act, she said something to the effect of, music licensing is so complicated, um, and broken, that if we get that right, we can get the whole statute right. And there's a lot of truth to that, but for now, uh, musicians are sort of doing their best to navigate all of this maze of different policy structures at a time when they're already often expected to do a lot more than they used to do, uh, keeping track of all these different revenue streams and figuring out how to patch it together into something resembling an income. Um, often serving as their own managers and booking agents and publicists and trying to market their work in all these new places and keep track of all these rapid developments and how it impacts them. And somewhere in there, there has to be time to write and record and perform music. It's not easy. One of the things we do at Future Music Coalition is we try to make that a little easier by demystifying these systems. We made, like, we tried to take a lot of the information you just heard and sort of crystallize it into a series of infographics. But like, and we did, but like even this is complicated. I mean, look how big this is. Uh, incidentally, you can get a copy of this chart at futureofmusic.org or just Google music and how the money flows and you can find it that way. Uh, we made it for artists, but it is also useful for folks in the policy community trying to wrap your heads around all this stuff. And sometimes people see this and just think, what if we just wipe it all away and throw out all of the middlemen? And I think that's sometimes well-intentioned, but it's also really naive. As, as they've said, um, musicians and songwriters don't have time to go around to every potential um, um, company that would want to license their music. Um, 
musicians and songwriters need partners to bring their music into the marketplace. They need digital services. They need platforms. They need performance rights organizations. They need publishers, record labels, distributors, and aggregators. Not every artist needs all of those things, but many of them do. Um, because there's just no way to do it themselves. Um, the important thing is that um, all of those partners need to be accountable and transparent. And, the import and an important thing to understand about this in the policy context is with nearly any partner, artist interests align with those partners um, some of the time, some, maybe a lot of the time, and then they're going to diverge some of the time. And that's why it's important to get perspectives from artists themselves, uh, preferably a diverse array of artists, because different artists have different business models. And uh, where an artist is in the marketplace is going to determine how they feel about a particular development in the marketplace. With streaming, different artists have been variously really excited about some aspects of these services, and some have been really concerned and critical about some aspects of the streaming services. And there's a lot of diverse opinions in the artist community uh, because they're working with different expectations about the scale of the, their potential audiences. Uh, they're at different stages in their careers, so their goals are different. Different genres have different business models. But today, rather than get too deep into the content of the different kinds of critiques that have been leveled at the streaming services, I want to offer just a simple way to wrap your head around this stuff and give you a framework for how to think about music policy generally. Um, so if the question is, what do artists need from streaming music, and how do the decisions made by Congress impact them? There's two big categories here. Category one is access to audiences, and category two is fair compensation. So both of these are really important. The access stuff is really important. This flourishing of new services um, has created incredible opportunities for artists who in the past would have been shut out of the marketplace and unable to reach audiences to really start thriving and connect to people all over the country and all over the world. Equally important is compensation, and there are some serious questions we have to ask about how the economics work out, especially for artists who don't have the kind of mass scale reach and ambitions that Taylor Swift does. There's, and it can be difficult for, for Congress to, to um, really know what the impact is going to be. In addition to all these licensing uh, questions and the structures that are set up to allow for these different services, there's, there's this larger policy background of, of decisions that Congress is involved in that has impacted the way that the streaming music landscape looks now. Um, so going uh, so I, I think I'm like, as far as running t out of time goes, sure. I think we're at, I think we got a good baseline going. Great. Uh, we haven't gotten into um, what Taylor Swift is um, beyond this omnipotent being. Um, is she a composer? Is she, a, a, does she own her sound recordings? Sure. Is she, can, who is she? What is she? So, Where does her power come from? Oh boy. <laughs> well, sh what, we do know that she is a songwriter and a performer. Um, so she has two. So those she has the two different powers right. um, to and control so she her music from both the sound recording copyright and the composition copyright. Um, she's also somebody who records for an independent label, and that's been really important in this recent conversation to understand because she has a degree of um, freedom to speak out about these industry structures and the ability to pull her catalog from some services in a way that could potentially be more difficult if she was recording for a major label. It's really funny. You know that um, song, um, We Are Never Getting Back Together, when she talks about um, her, her exes? Yeah, I was really upset like, by that. Right. She says something about um, 
some indie record that's cooler than mine. I always thought that was funny because she's on an indie label. Her in, her records are indie records. Anyway. So, so Alec. Yeah, I mean, just, just one Im important thing to, to add there is, so Taylor Swift, everyone here, this is the what we're talking about, pulled her, her music uh, from or threatened to and did pull some. But the thing to know is she had the right, because she's the, the recording artist and owns her recordings, to pull the sound recording. She didn't have the right to pull the musical composition. So if someone else wanted to record uh, the song you just mentioned, that's a Taylor Swift song, and put it up on, on Spotify or Apple or wherever, she wouldn't have been able to pull that off. Um, because, again, her, she's a member, I think, of BMI, and they're subject to a consent decree, and they have to give a license. So just to clarify, she could pull her sound recordings, but she wasn't able to pull her compositions. So her powers are limited. Yeah. By what? Why, why, wouldn't, she be able, <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't she be able to? What, what is limiting her power in that particular instance? Uh, what's limiting her power is that, is that the federal government has said uh, that, that it, through the consent decree, any member of BMI or ASCAP, and that's mm, the vast majority, okay. of, you know, 90% of songwriters in the U.S., have to license any service that asks for a license even before there's a price set okay. or a negotiation for a price. So, in, But in, in Spotify land, if, if that's like uh, – um, she has uh, um, power to pull her songs from Spotify. Not the, not the musical composition. Okay, but the performance. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Can she pull her songs from um, a non-interactive streaming service land like Pandora? The sound recording, but not the composition. No, 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 not the sound recording. No, because um, and we didn't talk much about what the statutory license means, but in, in the land of Pandora, where... Which is a magical land. Which is <laughs> Hypothetical. The land of Pandora. Um, where they are relying on the statutory license. The statutory license gives them access to every piece of commercially available music as long as they pay the statutory rate assigned to them, and we can talk about, I think at some point we're going to talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, and, no, the, and, the, and the artist does not have the right. So Congress it. gave that invincibility to Pandora against well, Taylor Swift. Not just to Pandora, it, it comes but at yes. a price. It's the other streaming. It comes at a price. It comes at a price. Oh, so get the price. And so I just, that's, we just only scratched the surface about that, but the, the, those types of things, we could go through each service and talk about, you know, whether she can, and then we, even experts can get confused about that stuff. There's a chart that Mike Godwin put together. It was like, everybody's done a chart about like rates and how much how, the, the, this entire ecosystem is dictated by the rates that they charge and what's the, um, is there a fair market value? Is it other types of um, economic analysis that yields? This is, this would make your head hurt um, even more so than the chart that um, Kevin had. Um, rates is a, also, heavily regulated by the government, uh, or in, the government is involved in different ways that can kind of control how these rates are. It's not just fair market as you right. would on an open market, right? That's right. So um, the, the rate standard is uh, – so there's a statutory license. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's uh, 1250. <laughs> Here we go. Um, look, if you want to start a digital streaming service in the United States – Tomorrow, anybody in this audience decides they want to start a, a digital streaming radio service, you have two choices. You can go to every um, – I mean, just, this is just on the sound recording side. I will let Alec, Alec has talked about the on the uh, composition side. 
but you can go to every record label or every copyright owner and try to negotiate a rate with them. And and for those that you can start your service with whomever you're able to negotiate a rate with and figure it out and create a back end and a, and a way to pay all of those people. Or you can go to the copyright office. You can fill out this one-page form that has eight questions on it, some of which are multiple choice. Give them a $40 check. And you then have access to every piece of commercially available music ever to use on your streaming service. And the next thing you do is you call Sound Exchange. And you, and you say, this is the kind of service I have. What's the rate that I pay? And so, that, so in that system, you pay a rate set by the Copyright Royalty Board. The rate standard used to set that royalty rate is in the law for webcasters, it is a fair market value rate. For satellite uh, radio, it is a different rate. It's oh. The, oh, yeah, and then also it is a below into, market. Yeah, we're getting through it. And we can go through all the different out just real quickly. Sure, I just, you, you, asked, you asked how the different rates, and, and on the composition side, just to point out, there are some really crazy results that happen because of the different regulatory structures, right? So Pandora, streaming all about that bass, right? One song contains two copyrights, sound recording, music composition. Without the music composition, there'd be nothing to record. Without the song, there'd be nothing, without the recording, there'd be nothing to listen to. What Pandora actually pays to the songwriter and the performer are completely different amounts. The performer gets 12 to 14 times more than the songwriter does because we have these two different regulatory structures that use two different processes to set the rate. So there's some crazy results that happen by the kind of conflicting and differing regulatory regimes. And it's all, it gets even more complicated from there. I, I promised I'd go to q and I have a hard stop at one, but I have to ask these folks at the, end, at the end of the conversation, and you should think about this too, who has more power, Congress or Taylor Swift. But I have time for like one question. Does anybody have one? Uh, the gentleman in the back, please make it a quick question. And, and The translator. I, I'm not familiar with the deal you're talking about. Okay, um, uh, let's go question. to the next question. Anybody have one? Uh, sir in the front row. So the, the, first, the first sale doctrine has protected um, consumers' rights to resell um, copyrighted material if they are reselling or giving away, transferring, if you will, the specific item that they've purchased, right? So if you buy a book, you can go to a used bookstore. You can sell it to them. They can sell it to somebody else, and the same is true for a CD. Um, that has... I believe that that has been litigated a couple of times in the context of digital products. And the courts have, if I recall correctly, essentially said, when you are giving away the digital download that you purchased, you are actually reproducing that download in order to give it away. So unless you actually hand somebody your hard drive, you are not giving away the specific 
purchased item, you're giving away a copy of that purchased item, and the first sale doctrine doesn't apply to copies. It only applies to the very specific item you purchased. And then it gets it gets even more complex because um, you have to look at your terms of service, if, and it says buy this song. Um, it could really just be a license, and you have to be... You have to be very clear about that. It gets very complicated. There's been talk about a f having a first sale doctrine. We had a whole panel on this, that issue alone, that one question. We had an entire 60-minute panel on last summer. You can do download the MP3, and you can own it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> and you can give it away. It was on our website. It's the, the panel is called first, uh, first Sale, No Resale. Uh, it, was ta it talks about that very question, and it was... And at the end, I asked the panelists um, if they downloaded something from... A, I mentioned the service... Um, do they own it? And it was like copyright professors on, and they're like, ah, uh, I have to go look at the terms of service. I'm not sure. So it's really complicated. And that's a whole, again, it, this is complicated enough. Even that, that one's just one slice of the entire pie. So, um, but that's a great question. And, and the answer is not easy. So I guess with, um, my three minutes left, four minutes left, uh, let me just go, you know, go down the, who wants to take the question first? Who, who is more, who has more superpowers? Um, in the internet music marketplace, Congress or Taylor Swift? Is there any limit to Taylor Swift's power? Well, I think Alec, Alec laid out, I mean, what the limit there is. While there is a statutory license, there is a limit because she can't take her, her recordings off of services that are using the statutory license. But if you want to, if you want to, Take a crack at the at the rest of it. Sure. So on the on the composition side, um, you know, clearly the government's more powerful. The government controls. You know, tells her she can't take her music off um, from as a as a songwriter. Well, she joined she joined ASCAP or BMI. That was her choice. So she doesn't have to join one of those services because right. she actually probably could afford a bunch of salespeople to go around and license every radio station if she chose to. <laughs> all all seven hundred thousand. So that's true. She could go also go to CSAC, which is not covered by a consent decree, okay. and which now owns the Harry so Fox Agency, and we can bang our heads some more. Because so, she is uniquely powerful, she could, just because of her sheer scale, she could rise above that particular regulatory environment. Well, any, any songwriter can choose CSAC, which is an unregulated, okay. non-consent decree. Actually, actually CSAC is an invitation-only uh, PRO. You, not anyone can join. Okay. They, they decide who I does. bet they'd give her an invitation if she wanted. Okay. Well, let's <laughs> Um, but, but going back to Taylor Swift, I mean, she, she obviously is tremendously powerful in getting the message about supporting fair pay for artists out there. And Congress right now is looking at copyright issues, looking at music licensing issues, and we spend a lot of time up here talking about, look, there's one basic thing that we should do in music licensing reform. You should make sure that artists and copyright owners have the opportunity to get fair market value for their work. And that's the same thing so she's she has, talking she has about. So she has, just beyond her rights in her music, she has influence. Yes. So if she yeah. wrote, like, similarly, she wrote that letter to the most valuable company on the planet. Um, if she wrote, a, like, a polite letter to Congress, would they turn around in 24 hours? I don't know. There are people in this room we could ask. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We write a lot of polite letters to Congress, and they haven't worked yet. So, uh, polite letters are always best. Um, it's important to understand, at least with the Apple thing, the, the rest of the independent sector had done a lot of the groundwork for Taylor Swift before that letter was published, too, and we should recognize the, the power that the independent sector has as well. I used to think Taylor Swift was an omnipotent until she got stuck on that um, elevated stage thing at Nationals Park on Monday night. But um, 
She couldn't just fly off of it. <laughs> but if we're going to use Taylor, Taylor Swift as a proxy for artists, especially artists who are sticking up for themselves and saying that they should have a voice in how the new digital marketplace is structured and that it shouldn't just be about competing business interests, then I would say that the, the best outcome and the most power happens when artists and Congress work together and create, um, create some ongoing working relationships to establish some dialogue and craft some collaborative policy solutions. That's where the real, that's democracy and that's where the real power comes from. Jonathan? Um, I, I think the most powerful recording artists are the ones who can stop presidential campaigns from using their song without their permission. <laughs> Um, which we seem to have a problem with. But, uh, you know, look, I Taylor Swift is at a magnificent arc in her career where she has influence, um, which I think is not to be confused with power. Um, so she certainly has, she can't undo the statutory license, and the statutory license pays her the very same amount per stream that it pays an indie artist um, who, no who nobody's ever heard of for one stream to one person. So that's a pretty interesting um, limitation on power also. So, um, you know, if I, if I may jump into this, I, I think if you think about how the American public responds to those two different entities, you know, in poll numbers, right, we can look at the polling for the United States Congress and what, what kind of lyrics they put out. Um, it, it isn't so high, right? But I think, you know, in poll numbers um, in the American public, I think Taylor Swift is <laughs> clearly the winner in that one. But it's a really interesting question. Hopefully this served as kind of a baseline for you know, as Congress starts reworking some of these things and looking into them, hopefully this will be a baseline of understanding a little bit of that. You really have to get a PhD or take sem semesters of school for this. It's really complex, but hopefully um, everybody's invested and hopefully Congress can come to a decision on things that are coming down the pike. So I want to thank the panelists and thank everybody and thanks everybody.